scriptures with you, if you would turn to the book of Ephesians, second chapter. Let me say before I begin this, uh, <clears throat> how much I appreciate your persistence uh, in the confusion, uh, in getting in and out of here. I know that you're crowded, and I know that it takes some, some persistence, and I just really appreciate it. I want to remind you, that's part of your worship of God. Somebody at the last service said, I live closer than I had to park here this morning. <laughs> and I just, I really appreciate the effort that you all are putting out every week to come to hear God's Word. I want to tell you that that is a part of what you give Him. Not just that you will apply His Scripture, but that you will make sure that you are here to hear it. Let me remind you where we are. This year, we want to take however long it takes maybe even beyond this year, to find the purpose for which you were made. Last week, we talked about the challenge of finding that purpose, and we talked about the price. The price of finding God's purpose for your life is your life. There is, it's a paradox that there is no path to certainty except risk. The only way you can ever know for sure... If God is God, and if He means what He says, is to test it, to experiment with it, to get out of the boat and walk in the middle of the storm toward Him. It's the only way you'll ever know for sure. It's said in the, in the path today, trust and obey, for there's no other way. Uh, and, and there's a line in there that says we can, uh, for we, can never, we never can prove the delights of His love until all on the altar we lay. And that's exactly right. So that's what, we're, that's what we're going to do. We're going to prove the delights of His love for those of you who will get out of the boat and experiment with what you see this year and put your life on the line as God reveals to you what He wants you to do. Now, we realize that even as we say that, even as we say the only path to certainty is risk, that there can be risk with bad theology and risk with good theology. And what we want to do for the next couple of months is to build a sound doctrine, to build a firm theological foundation so that you know exactly what Scripture says in the way God meant it. Now let me tell you, as I read this particular Scripture, which I think sums up better than any other Scripture, the fact that God does have a particular plan for your life. It is crystal clear in the scripture. The first question you ask yourselves is, well, do, if, you know, if I want to find out God's purpose for my life, how can I be sure God has a purpose for my life? Read these three simple verses with me, and it would be good for you to memorize these. For by grace, beginning in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, for those of you who may be new to Christianity, grace is God's unmerited favor. The only way we are ever saved is by accepting something we didn't deserve. It's a gift of God. It'll say that later in the scripture. It's not because we earn it. It's because God just gives it to us. And our connecting line is faith. It's not how much faith you have, because again, that would be a work, wouldn't it? It's just simply believing. God did this for me. I'm going to accept it. That's grace. That's the connecting line of grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And by the word, we get the word, uh, 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 the Greek, we get a word of salvation 
and the, the Greek is, is, uh, also gives us the word salve. And salve is something that you apply to a cut so that the two sides of that cut may come together and be whole. And that's exactly what happens when we're saved. The two things that are separated, us and God, come together to form a perfect whole. We are reconciled to God. We're in a relationship with God. Okay, then it says, and that, not of yourselves. Now, remember, I want you to remember those words. Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now look at these words. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Does God have a plan for your life? Absolutely He has a plan for your life. Now we want to start this off very carefully. We want to say that there are two kinds of theologies in this world. One is a man-centered theology and one is a God-centered theology. One is, one is anthropocentric and the other is theocentric. And there has been a continual temptation toward man-centered theology since the garden when the serpent said to Eve, If you eat this apple, you will be like God. Now, she didn't, the serpent didn't mean you will be in the image of God. God already promised that. The imago dei, we are made in the image of God. The implication of that was you won't need any God anymore because you'll be as good as God. You will be your own God. There has been a continual temptation for us to become gods since we were in the garden. And there will be that temptation... The Bible says until the 18th chapter of Revelation when Babylon is destroyed. And you will know if you're an experienced Christian that Babylon is the symbol of all man-made religion. All that this world would build instead of relating directly to God. So therefore, that temptation will always be with us. Because we would love to think that we are the center of the universe. And that how this universe turns out depends on what we do. We would love to think that. In Greece, the religion was very uh, anthropomorphic. I mean, there were, there, were, there were gods who had limitations and foibles and faults and so on and so forth. There was a confusion of man and God. In Rome, uh, the emperor wasn't just an emperor. He was what? A god. He was worshipped as a god. That temptation has stayed with us all through the years. In the age of the Enlightenment, people worshipped reason. They thought that the highest there was, was man's reason. That that was divine. And in more recent days, we have had several temptations toward anthropocentric theology. There, it started with the human potential movement in very recent days. In saying, you know what really counts is all of your God-given potential. Now, this sounds very good, by the way. You, you can have... Uh, uh, a Christian-sounding human potential thing. What really counts in this world is if you are all you can be for God, and so therefore God wants you to be, you know, fulfilled. I'll get to this later on. How that gets translated to people, though, is God is here to fulfill them. God is here to pull out of them whatever He can. God is here to serve them. Now, in a, in a, uh, uh, a regular uh, church, there are some very dangerous theologies that you would never really pick up on because they're so, they're so subtle and they're so individual. 
my own upbringing, we, we argued about uh, in the Lord's Prayer. We didn't argue. We just said, which word should we use? Trespasses, debts, you know, so on and so forth. And I come from a Methodist background. And, uh, and so I, I tell everybody I'm a recovering Arminian. Um, <laughs> and that will miss most of you. But, uh, uh, but I recognize from my own background the reason that I wanted to emphasize free will so much in my own theology is so that I would be the center of my universe. And so that I would decide what was going on in my life. And so that God really wouldn't have a substantial say in that. I could follow God if I felt like it. See, there's, even that is anthropocentric. Uh, all of the cults that are coming out these days are anthropocentric. I mean the most popular ones. Jehovah's Witnesses. If you work hard enough, you'll be a ruler on, on this earth. Mormons, if you work hard enough, you'll be a god. All the New Age religions promise you that you will be like God. It's exactly what the serpent promised. There is a temptation in us to, to want to control the world. And we give in to it by putting ourselves at the center. And we don't understand God correctly. Uh, a few years ago, Becky and I went to a play in Washington, D.C. where We were at a conference up there. There was a play in John F. Kennedy Center. And it was very well done. It was a, it was a, uh, a whodunit thing, you know, a murder play, you know. It was very well done. And they did something very unusual. In the third act, they stopped the play. All of the characters froze. And one character came toward the audience and said, Okay, now we want you to guess who murdered this person. Now, there were three choices that, that they gave us, you know, and everybody voted. Everybody let you know. Uh, and, and about 60% of us lifted up our hands, and we thought the woman did it, you know. Oh, the woman did it. So they said, okay, now we're going to go back and we're going to finish the play. And they finished the play, and sure enough, the woman did it. And we were sitting there all proud, you know. Like, yeah, I knew it. <laughs> I'm pretty much an expert at these things. I know what that's stuff. <laughs> then, at the end of the play, they came back. And they said, we want to tell you what we just did. We have three endings to this play. <laughs> and on any given night, wherever the audience votes, that's how we end the play. Well, you know what? People honestly believe that the universe is like that. They honestly believe that God waits to see how, how most of us vote, and that's how he's going to go on with the world. Nothing could be further from the truth. There is an insidious theology called process theology that says, you know, God doesn't have it all figured out. God does not have a plan that he's going to bring about. He waits to see how we're doing things. This is part of how he uh, gets a, uh, 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 fulfilled himself. And however we decide to do things, of course, he tries to coax us, he tries to influence us, but however we decide to do things, that's how he proceeds with the world. That's called process theology. Nothing could be further from Scripture. Why do we do that? We do it, we believe in that stuff because we want to be the center of everything, because we want to lift ourselves up higher than we deserve to be. There is something of the rooting for the underdog in America. And, I, and I'm going to tell you a story that, that takes that literally. Um, do you remember when you were growing up, and this just to show our character and how we are. When you were growing up, all the wonderful, smart animal shows on TV. Rin Tin Tin. Man, the guy was a laser scientist, wasn't he? I mean, the dog could do anything. My friend Flicka. The story of a horse and a boy who loved Flipper. 
I, my, my favorite was Lassie. I watched Lassie every week. Every week I turn on and, and you hear, <laughs> yeah, and Lassie be running and so on and so forth. I, oh man, this is great old Lassie's gonna come on. He's the smartest dog in the whole world. I just sit there and watch this thing. And every week is about the same, about the same plot. Gramps would wander off in the woods, get stuck in quicksand, you know. <laughs> Say, Lassie, go get help, you know. Lassie go, and he dug back toward the farmhouse, you know, and had to fight off three bears, you know, on, on the way. Get back to the farmhouse, and of course there's Timmy and Mommy and Daddy making cookies in the kitchen. Yeah, Daddy puffing on a pipe, you know, and, and uh, Lassie comes in, and Timmy goes, What is it, Lassie? Is somebody in trouble? And Lassie goes, and start dragging Timmy across the floor. And Timmy goes, I think she wants us to follow her. Oh, I'm sorry. I think she wants us to follow her, you know. And of course his daddy goes, well, I don't know, son, you may be right. What do you think? Turn to the wife, you know, and the wife has a dress, pearls, this is kitchen work now, and an apron on. Well, yes, I think we just ought to follow that dog and see what the... So they follow the dog, and Lassie goes, and meanwhile, you're watching Gramps sink lower and lower in this question. You're going, are they going to get him? And they get there, and his, his hat's just kind of floating up there, and his nose is just... And they pull him out, and every show... It would end with everybody standing around this dog. See? It was canocentric. Everybody's standing around the dog. And Gramps says something like, You know, I thought I was a goner there. And I would have been if it hadn't been for Lassie. And Timmy gets down and hugs the dog's neck and says, Yeah, Gramps, I guess Lassie's just about the best friend a boy ever had. Right, Lassie? And Lassie would go, that's right. Everybody laughs just like this, you know. Because you knew how it was going to end up. Because Lassie knew everything. Well, see, the reason I love that show is because I had a dog. I had my own dog. And I wanted her to be like Lassie. Her name was Hilda. She was a wiener dog. <laughs> and after every show, I'd run out in the backyard. And there was Hilda the wiener dog tied up to this clothesline running back and forth. You know, I'd be running out there and she'd be up on her hands like... And I'd go, What's that, Hilda? Is somebody in trouble? I'd say, I'll let you go, girl. You lead her to me. So Hilda the wiener dog would get over and just take off. And I'd be running away. I'd say, What is that, Hilda? Is Gramps in quicksand? And she'd... And go the other way. Oh, what is it, Hilda? So if the Indians got somebody pinned down, we'll rescue. Man, I'd run around that neighborhood every day for two hours straight, sweating like a dog. She was sweating like a dog because she was a dog. We never rescued one person. Stupid dog. After months and months of that, I came to a startling realization. Hilda was just a dog. She was just a dog. And I started to think, hey, wait a minute. Maybe Lassie's just a dog. Maybe they just, like, trained her. Like, and maybe they're, they're, ma they're making out like she's really smarter than she really is. Maybe Lassie's not smarter than people. We have this in us that we want to believe that animals are people. I, I literally stopped into go dro drive a drive through fast food thing the other day, stopped behind a car that had a bumper sticker that said, cats are people. 
Now there's a person who needs to get out more. <laughs> lonely, lonely person. <laughs> you know what? Cats are just cats. And dogs are just dogs. And people are just people. People aren't gods. People aren't gods. And it doesn't matter what we make our mind up to do. God is going to perform His plan anyhow. People are just people. And the meaning of this universe does not rest with us. And the center of this universe does not rest with us. And the results of this universe does not rest with us. And it doesn't matter who you think you are or how many of us there are that decide one thing. Look in the second chapter of uh, Psalms. Look what it says there. Why are the nations in an uproar? This starting with verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the people, peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart. God's talking to His angels. And cast away their cords from us. And then it describes the scene. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Who are we to think that it's up to us how the world comes out? Who are we to think that God waits with baitless breath to see what we're going to decide so that the world can proceed, so that our world can proceed? And He has to react to us. Now, that is lousy theology. It is gratifying at one point because we really believe we're the center of the universe, but you know the awesome responsibility it is to be God? Most of you carry it around. You think unless you do things exactly right, they're not going to come out right. You think that the welfare of all your life depends upon your reasoning and upon your decisions. Mm -mm. Take off that mantle. Take off that responsibility and put it where it belongs. It belongs with God. Our only job is to trust and obey. For there's no other way. Our only job. Now let me tell you a good theology. Theocentric theology. And that is that God not only has a plan, but He has the power to pull it off. Let me take it like this. Let me say that the Bible is very clear in describing, in the beginning, God created. And at the very end, Jesus says in, in the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. From the beginning to the end, God is the one in control. Let me describe in Aristotelian terms. Aristotle said there are four causes for everything. The first one is a material cause. That is, what is the physical composition of a certain thing? God created. God created the universe. The second one is an efficient cause. What power it takes to make that certain thing. Efficient cause. Now let me give you some scripture readings that will tell you that God 
is the efficient cause of what happens in the world. And that there is nothing outside the bounds of his power. If you have doubts in the power of God, or that he can perform certain things in your life, or make his plans come about, I don't want you to have those doubts. I want you to ask yourself the question that is in Numbers 11.23. Numbers 11.23, the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? Moses began to doubt him. Moses began to think it was all on him. And God, and God said, I love King James even better. King James says, uh, wait a minute, is God's hand too short? That is, you mean to tell me I can't reach down there and do something about this? There is nothing God can't do, and God will perform exactly what he has said. That's why we have prophecy and fulfillment. I'm going to tell you about that in just a minute, too. But I also want you to read... In Ezekiel 12.25, God saying it himself. For the Lord, for I the Lord shall speak, it says, and whatever word I speak will be performed. Doesn't sound like he's waiting on us, does it? Doesn't sound like he needs us, does it? He makes it come about in our lives. Now watch. I shall speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord. And let me give you one more. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, there's a little formula in Scripture. And it's implied in many verses, it's said in a few. In many verses, it's implied how much more. The little formula is, if, if men do this, how much more also will God do it? Now, that formula is implied in this particular Scripture. Look at what it says. Which one of you, I mean, Jesus is saying here, this is just common sense. Listen to this common sense. Which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, that is, he has a plan, okay, when he wants to build a, a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule and say, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, do you think, if Jesus is saying that's just common sense, as far as men are concerned, don't you think God has at least that much common sense? And if He has a plan for your life, He has enough power to complete it? Philippians 1.6, don't you think He can do that? I mean, what, is, what any man would do, God would at least do that and more. So therefore, if God has a purpose for your life, He has the power to complete it. That's the efficient cause. Third, the formal cause is this. The, 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 the archetype or the blueprints that he has in his minds that he wants to bring about. That's what we're trying to discover. And the, the archetype, the, 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 uh, the prototype, uh, I'm sorry, not the prototype, Jesus is the prototype. The archetype of what he has planned for our life is the Word. It is the Word. It was centrally done when it says in John 1, 14, it was centrally done by Jesus. And the Word became flesh. How do I find the plan for my life? Well, I'll tell you one thing. You don't look inside. In Jeremiah it says, It is not within a man to know the way he should walk. You don't look inside. You've got to look at the Word. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You've got to look in the Word. Before you discover the final cause, as Aristotle would put it, 
or the purpose for which you were made, you have to look and say, can I read this word and can I discover the pattern God had meant for me for my life? And then when you discover it, you put it inside your shoes. Fulfillment in Scripture does not mean your peaceful emotional satisfaction. That's what the word means in this culture. When you say, are you fulfilled? Somebody says, well, golly, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I feel fulfilled. Sometimes I feel fulfilled. And when they say that, what they mean by it is this, this feeling of not being tense or this feeling of uh, um, being happy or peaceful or whatever. Well, those feelings are fine and those feelings come when we trust in the Lord. But that's not the point. In Scripture, the word fulfilled means bring the word to pass in your shoes. And the, this was done that it might be fulfilled. It is bringing prophecy to life in this world so that the plan of God might be manifested in your life. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. What did he mean? I wanted you to see the law walk around in front of you. So that you wouldn't just assume the law was a letter anymore. You'd know it was a person who loved you and poured himself out for you. And that's what God wants from us. He wants us to know this word so well that we're walking in this word. You understand? And that's what we're going to do this year. To know what God wants for our life. That's what we're going to discover. Why were you made? If you've already been told that, and some of you have, some of you know your purpose here, then chances are you need to be reminded of it, and you need to be confirmed in it. That's what happened with Becky and I. I'm going to tell you a story in just a second. But for the rest of you who have not discovered that yet, let me tell you what's necessary to discover it. I want you to stick with us, and I want you to work with us for the rest of this year. I want you, by the end of this year, or whenever God reveals it to you, to know every day why you're living and be able to order your life in accordance with the center of God's will. And I want for all of the rest of us to confirm you in that way. Because God does have a purpose for your life. It's in Scripture. In order to get it from Scripture, you have to have the Holy Spirit interpret Scripture to you. You can't understand it in your natural mind. In order to have that, you're going to have to have Jesus living in your life. So if you've not accepted Christ yet, in order to find your purpose, you've got to come through Christ. Pascal said, Blaise Pascal said, It is not only that we only understand God through Jesus Christ, we only understand ourselves through Jesus Christ. So therefore, I'm going to give you a chance in a little while to accept Christ so that, you, so that God can reveal his word to you and you will understand it for your life. Now, for the rest of you, some of you already know your purpose. Some already know your call. But what happens is exactly what I talked about last week. You kind of distazzo, you kind of waver. You, you get off track, you drift off track unintentionally. And so you, you, you are living with all of this tension and responsibility that God never meant for you to have. And you feel like you're not going to make it, you're just exhausted all the time. Let me tell you how that happened with Becky and I. And if, I, and if, it, if it can happen with us, it can happen with you. I spend at least an hour every day in prayer. I, I read hours and hours and hours a week in Scripture, and it still happened to me, and it can happen to you. 
Becky, when she was called to me, was called literally to be my wife as her life's calling. I mean, that's how God did it. That's not always how this happens. Many of you are called to different things. This is not, a, this is not for everybody, but this is what God did in her life. She call, he called her to me and, says, and said to her, you are his wife, literally in the, in the, in the, in the um, uh, same sense as Genesis 3, to be my help me, to be the other part of me, to be a part of whatever God was calling me to, that was what she was to do with her life. And that's how we operated for, you know, 17, 18 years. Um, we're we going to be married 20 years this, this year, right? And we did everything together in ministry. When I made hospital calls, she took all the kids and just sat in the hospital until I got done. And we, I mean, we did, there wasn't anything we didn't do together. And we absolutely loved it. That's how we operated. That's who we were. Again, I wouldn't advise that for everybody, but that's who we were. And that was our call together. Well, we took a look at, um, we got a kid two years away from college, wants to go to a Christian school. We want, to, want him to go to a Christian school. Said, going to cost some money. Where are we going to get? Well, I'll tell you what. We'll just, this is just common sense. This is a no-brainer. Becky, you're, te- you're, you're trained as a teacher. You go ahead and teach and, and get enough money to put in through school, and that's how we'll accomplish that purpose. Now, that's a good purpose, isn't it? Isn't that a good purpose? I mean, sending your kid to a Christian college, isn't that a wonderful thing? She got a job in a wonderful place. Master's Academy loves it. Loves the teachers. Loves the students. Loves everything about that place. Meanwhile, she's out there, and we're not trusting God anymore for the money because we got a way to do this, see? We just kind of well, didn't even notice this. Just kind of went, okay, we'll get this money. We'll provide this money. Not depend on God for it. The way we had depended on God... For everything else big in our lives, we'll just do this. It's just a no-brainer. That's exactly what it was. Well, she goes to work full-time, and immediately there is a hole in my life this big. I mean this big, and a hole in my ministry this big. You know what God's doing here? I'm inadequate to handle a congregation of 100 people, let alone what's happening here. So I'm feeling... Every day, total inadequacy, and don't have my partner there. Don't have the other half of my ministry there. And there's a hole in my life. I miss her like crazy. But am I going to say that to her? No. Because I don't want to discourage her. I don't want to make her feel bad, you know. Meanwhile, she's teaching. There's a hole in her life this big. This big. Not because she doesn't love the students or because she doesn't love the school, but because she's operating outside of her call. And it didn't hit either one of us because we did the thing that you guys do. I know you do. Hey, you bite the bullet and you do it. Right? And there's a lot in life that you bite the bullet and you just do it. But when it comes to messing with God's call, that's not one of them. It wasn't a matter of energy expended. It was a matter that there was something missing spiritually. And we had a little hurdle about getting a college class for master's work and all that kind of stuff. And, and she, she missed it. And every one of those, you know, people who are a little bit sensitive spiritually kind of take that opportunity to test the spirits. And I drove around, and God just said, Why did you leave my will for your life? And I felt just stupid. And I came back and I said, Beck, I want you to finish out the year at master's, but I would really appreciate if next year you would just come back and be 
the other half of my ministry. She burst into tears. We have had the best week we've had, or week and a half, or whatever it's been, in the past five years. Why? Because we're back in the center of God's will. And we will put out twice as much effort as we have. And it doesn't matter how tired we get because we know we're operating according to what God said. I want that for every person in this sanctuary. For you to have that assurance every day so that life does not suck your blood out. But you have the blood of Christ flowing through you into life. It's a whole different dynamic. Want that? Would you pray with me? God, it's a long, long journey. We're not asking that it be easy. We're not even asking that the timing be to our liking. We're just asking that you would not let us turn to the right or to the left. We know that the way is narrow and it's hard. But God, there is no other way that matters. There is no other way whereby we can have a sense of contributing what we were put here to contribute to this world and have a sense of pleasing you as our ultimate peace. That's what we want. Take us step by step. God, if there is someone in here who does not have a personal relationship with you but would like to establish that today, Let them pray this prayer with me in their heart. God, I recognize I'm a sinner and I'm lived apart from you intentionally. But I don't want to do that anymore. My life is empty. It is repetitive. It does not accumulate to anything that will last. I want you to come and live in my life. I accept the forgiveness that Jesus Christ paid for my sins on the cross. Jesus, I invite you into my heart to make of my life whatever you will and to ask you to help me interpret Scripture according to God's purpose for my life. That last part, Lord, all of us would pray. Help us see with spiritual eyes why you put us here so that we can live out Scripture and you can live through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.